Second year of Darius the king in the sixth month came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lay waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm, and he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountain, and bring wood, and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow up, blow on it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heavens over you, is, the heaven over you, is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains, and upon the, upon the corn. And upon the new wine, and upon upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Then speak Haggai the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and we ask that you would bless not only the reading, but the hearing and the preaching of your word. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds that as you've shaken up, uh, as you've shook up uh, the remnant of Israel, the, 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 those who returned from exile, Lord, and they obeyed you. So we also ask that your word tonight would shake us up and would uh, turn our eyes to you. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated.
Westminster um, Shorter Catechism begins with question and answer one and reads, What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. As Christians, we believe this statement to be true. We believe it's important, yet... If we are honest, we know that it's not so easy to live by that principle. To put God first and to glorify Him in all we do. And this is the issue in our passage. It is an issue of priority, priorities. And it is what we will consider. The fact that having experienced the pleasure of serving the Lord, the people of God are far too quick to forget it. Yet, our passage is not without hope, as we shall see. And those people, as children of God, find hope. As we have just read in uh, Haggai 1, uh, verse 2, it says, Thus spaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. To understand these words... And to understand our passage, that is our chapter, to understand the book of Haggai as a whole, we must, um, we need to know some context behind it. The book of Haggai was written in 520 BC by Haggai, a prophet prophet of whom we know very little. Um, He was the prophet of the Lord, but that's pretty much it. He's also mentioned uh, uh, elsewhere in the Bible. Um, but as a messenger of the Lord. His book consists of two chapters, three messages. Some consider those to be four. Um, And the first of those messages is our chapter today. And his audience is the first wave of Jewish exiles that returned, led by Zerubbabel, a descendant of King David. They returned to Jerusalem after 70 years of Babylonian Captivity. Many had remained in Babylon and would not would return later, um, first with Ezra and then during Nehemiah's time. But these initial cap, uh, captives, the ones that Haggai addresses right here and now, they returned under King Cyrus's decree to rebuild the, uh, the temple of the Lord. That was the sole purpose for their return. Their time of captivity of those 70 years has come to, the, to, the, uh, to, to an end, and most of them surely were thinking and seeing this moment in history as, um, as, re, uh, as a turn in fortune, as a prospect of great, abundant blessing. They were glad and eager to return home and to begin the work. And it took them a few years to lay the foundation of the temple, but they did it. They did it. What happened next, however... Uh, is that people in surrounding regions came to them and offered their help, and they wanted to join the work uh, for their own motives. But Israelites, the Israelites at this point, they wanted to remain faithful to the Lord. They refused the help. They will do it themselves. These other people, however, um, launched an attack on them by going to the king and discouraging the Israelites, so much so that they seized the work and they stopped building the temple. 
they do not pick that work up for the next 15 to 20 years. And this is where Haggai's message comes. This is where Haggai's words come to these people. They come to us tonight as well. And he says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, the word say here indicates that this was not a one-time petition. Rather, people were coming to the... They would, they would repeat this time and time and time again, and not necessarily with their mouths, but with their works, with their, with their actions, uh, just by postponing time and again uh, the work of the Lord, seeing something creep up that seems to be more important, more relevant, more immediate, as it were. Um, and and we, we see this first by them being discouraged by the opposition. Uh, then we see them returning to, to the promised land and facing the realities of work, of housing, of providing for your family. And soon enough, uh, one, thing's come, one thing comes after another, and they begin their life, but at the same time, they keep postponing the building of the temple. They never say never. They don't say, no, we don't need the temple. They say, well, this is now much more pressing, what we have to do here. This is our livelihood. This is um, what needs to be dealt with first. Some, uh, we, we read, for example, in, in verse 4, uh, where it reads, is it time for you, ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Some commentators suggest that those sealed houses, the wood that was uh, used for those houses, was the very wood that was supposed to be used for the temple. Whether it's true or not, it's speculation, but it shows us something. It, sh- it gives us a hint, a peek into uh, the heart of the people and their attitude of the people. What it uh, brings across and shows us and shows Haggai's point to us, which is that they were spiritually asleep, that they somehow got used to this idea that there's this unfinished building and that's okay. It's not necessarily as easy to understand that from our uh, time where we don't have uh, temples, but if we think of, say, uh, a situation where we have a really a, a clear and crisp stream of water in our backyard. We have that. It's tasty. It's delicious. It's healthy to us. And yet whenever we want to drink, whenever we feel thirsty, we go inside, we get a glass, and we get some tap water. Water, uh, for the sake for this, of, of this illustration, that is not only, that does not only smell, differently and unpleasantly, but has poison in it. Yet, we still drink it, we're thirsty again, we drink it again, and in time we forget that there's a stream. This, is, this sounds strange, this sounds stupid, but this is exactly what those people did. To understand the severity, however, of what they're doing, we have to... Um, look at what precisely was lost by delaying God's work. 
Yes, God told them to build the temple, but we can see certain reasons why that would be important, apart from the fact that he's the Lord God, he's their Lord, and whatever he commands as the sovereign Lord of, of hosts must be obeyed. But apart from that, there is also the fact that Haggai's first message was recorded on the first day of the month. And that day was usually a sacred day of worship, a day of distinctive joy and pleasure before the Lord, And the absence of temple, the absence of that building made the celebration impossible because the temple was meant to be the place of sacrifice. It was meant to be the place of atonement. It was meant to to be the place that marked the fullness and the presence of the Lord. His glory and majesty among his people in a certain sense it stood for the highest spiritual reality although it was just a building and we are not here to say that god is limited by buildings by this building or another building or that building in history that special building in in israel's history but what we see is that god is a god of means and he uses means to communicate a message to communicate a truth a spiritual reality Um, remember that in the days of moses He would first show his presence in the form of a pillar of of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then when the tabernacle was built, he would dwell in it. He had been with his people during the times of Joshua and the judges, King Saul and David. and And then finally when Solomon came and built the temple, God dwelled in that temple ever since. He chose that it that way, and it was especially staggering and, and heartbreaking and devastating to his people when they saw the temple destroyed because it signified so much. It signified God's presence, and that meant that he removed himself from him, or at least this is how it looked from their human perspective. Yet the reality was this, that God did not forget them. He wanted them to return and to rebuild the temple. Again, speaking in symbolic language, what does it say to them? That he's faithful, that what, however grim their future looked before going into Babylon, it was not true, and God proved, and remain, uh, proved to remain faithful. He actually preserved the Davidic line, as we uh, have just read. And then, in, uh, and so in, in uh, verse 7 of chapter 1, we read what God himself, himself says. Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then he continues, he says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified. So this is what is at stake. The delayed experience of God's glory and pleasure. The rebuking questions that we find in chapter 1 were not coming from a pretentious God. 
but a God who wants his people to live the way he intended them to. In his presence. Seeing his glory, having his glory lift their hearts. And then everything else, as that happens, everything else, as we ourselves know, changes. Everything else comes into place. Everything else is more bearable. Everything We see the world through different eyes. The challenges of opposition um, and of immediate needs would not have seemed so uh, scary or pressing for the Israelites because the Lord would be with them. It is as Paul says in Romans 8, in verse 31, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And this is really, these words um, express, says, God's desire for his people. And by relaying the building of the temple, they delayed this reality. They kept it from fulfillment. And we might think we might slip into this uh, idea, into this thinking that somehow that happened accidentally. That they... um, Well, they had reasons. They had real opposition come from outside. And so they had a valid reason to postpone building. They had a valid reason to postpone when their own pressing matters were considered a higher priority. But there's something something wicked about this postponement. I'm I'm always amazed when I... Not amazed, astonished, surprised, even... Time and time again, whenever I read the Old Testament, I'm taken aback by the fact that people who were walking, the Lord was with them. He is with us. With them back then, he was in his presence. As much as we can handle as human beings, they could see the Lord manifest his own presence in certain ways. He was with them. He walked with them. And yet, time and time and time again, they turn away from him, they worship idols, uh, they sin, they go through these motions and motions and motions of disobedience. And yet again, again, they do the same thing. And it's not to say, I'm not saying that from, and we shouldn't say it from a high, high mountain, you know, from a high position saying, well, how could they? To me, it actually says a lot more about my own heart. Because if those people back there could do things the way they did, that's a red light for me. That's a warning sign for me. But we shouldn't think that this happened by accident. This was evil. And this wasn't a, something to be ignored, something to be taken lightheartedly. And in fact, we actually see where this leads them. There's another thing. They miss out on the, on, on the plan of God that was for them. To worship Him and to dwell and glory, in His glory and in His presence. Another thing that we see is that um, they lost a sense of contentment. Look, at, look with me at uh, verse 5 again. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's calling them to consider their ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled up with drink. Ye clothe, 
but there is none warm, and he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag of holes. This is God's call to examine themselves, to look around, to actually wake up and see, oops, what's happening here? The reality is not necessarily that they um, went from hardship to hardship, from difficulty to difficulty. That might, have, might as well have been uh, true in uh, the case of some of them. But for many, whatever they had, these words speak of their discontentment with that. They were not satisfied what they had. They always wanted more. Um, they worked from, uh, from paycheck, as it were, to paycheck. They mismanaged uh, their finances. Um, they were not satisfied with food and drink, with whatever they had. It always, they always wanted more. And this serves as a perfect illustration. The bag, a bag with holes, is what their life was. A bag with holes where whatever they put in doesn't stay there. It leaves. Whatever they put in, and that hole was their own um, dissatisfaction with their life. And so we see that blindness, certain blindness uh, came. And that, that blindness reinterprets everything else in their own life. Whatever happens to them, they don't see it. They don't see their discontentment. They don't see um, the realities around them. They, the foundation that was there of the temple, that's become normal to them. If you had, I bet if you had a, uh, a pagan passerby come and see that foundation, they would probably understand immediately that something wrong rather than the people of Israel. Israel. They would see, where's, your, where's the temple? Where do you worship your gods? What's happening here? And yet Israelites were fine with it. And some of us, as we see the, this, and, and we and we try, as we see the condition in which those people were, were, uh, and it, on the outside it doesn't necessarily seem that severe, but as we see, it was, it was there, it was spiritual lethargy, there was spiritual blindness in their life. They were compromising their worship, and they were fine with that. They were compromising their lives, and they were fine with that. They were compromising their. Uh, relationship with the Lord, and they were fine with that. And we might wonder, why? Why does that happen? Why does the Lord wait for those 15 or 20 years? Why doesn't he do anything? Why, don't, why, don't, why doesn't he turn them around and send them back into exile? Or why doesn't he send uh, uh, an outside uh, force, an army, a power to come and wipe them off? Well, for one, he is a patient God. He's a long-suffering God. But there's more in this. And 
As we, as we read um, this chapter, for, um, for a non-believer, even to some believers, as they read this chapter today, it might sound like this is a, a, a self-serving, ambitious God who wants everyone else to kneel at his, at his feet. And he wants, he thinks about nothing but himself. We, we could read that into these verses. Um, he says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. And, and someone could come and say, well, I don't like this God. I don't, I don't, I don't want to believe this God. This is outrageous. If we say that, what we miss when we say that is the reality that which we, with which we began. It was that we are to glorify God. It is, um, to get a, an idea of it, think of um, oxygen and how we breathe it. No one protests against breathing oxygen. That's the very thing we need. That's the thing without which we would suffocate. And yet, we do this when we say this about the Lord. He is, as the highest good, He is the creator of heaven and earth, and whatever He is, He is the highest good. And therefore, by worshiping Him, we are accessing that highest good. So when the Lord says that I would take pleasure in it and that I would be glorified, it also means that He's in their presence. And he's wishing them the very best they could have. This is a God who reaches out for his people and who does not remain without glory. Yes, for his own purpose, for his own glory, for his own satisfaction, but also for the fact that they are their best when they glorify him. We are our best when we glorify Him. At the same time, at the same time, what is before our eyes is a God who pursues His people. Note how many times He says, consider your ways, Consider your ways. Think with me about what's happening. Think with me about what's happening around you. And then he takes a step further. He says, you see how things are not going your way? That's me. Why? Because you're busy around, caring for yourselves. The foundation is there. The house is not built. The priorities are not where they should be. And he's trying to draw their attention. He's not, he's not just destroying them. He's not that just leaving or abandoning them. He's going after his people. He's, he's showing them this. Read with me. Um, Therefore the heaven over you stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from the fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon, upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. In other words, 
upon everything. I closed the windows of heaven so you would know what's happening, so you would wake up, so that in order that spiritual lethargy that you're in would end. And it's interesting to see that after he says these words, the very next words are these. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and then all the remnant of Israel, they obey. They obey the voice of the Lord. They fear the Lord. So they respond. In other words, he has woken them up. He has achieved his goal. He has shown them. Suddenly they see. Suddenly they, they realize that, wait a second. This is not how it's supposed to be. We've been asleep. We've been, been slowly and, and steadily out of oxygen for a very long time. And yet we're fine. You know, I, when I read this chapter, I, I remember, um, I don't know if it's, I don't remember exactly if, if the book has it the same way the movie does, but uh, Hobbit, uh, uh, the movie has a scene where um, Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit, is, as he's traveling with these 12 or however many uh, dwarves, and they enter Mirkwood, uh, a magic-filled uh, forest, and they're all falling asleep, they're dizzy, they're kind of, something's happening. They, they're on the verge of, of uh, receiving a final blow, as it were, by evil. And yet he's the one who climbs up the trees, and he's the one who reaches the top. And as he does it, the first thing he, do, he, he does is he breathes in the fresh air. And this is what we see here, I think. This is what these people suddenly do. They see what's happening. They see that for all those years, they have been betraying the Lord. And they obey him, and they fear him, not as this despot, as this uh, dictator who's about to crush them. Yes, there is that, that sense. There is awe uh, in, in the fear of the Lord. There is the realization that we were supposed to be crushed. We are not supposed to be alive, and yet we are. And that speaks volumes, and that brings us to really the high point of this passage to the point that shows us that the Lord pursues his people. Yet if we are honest, we might ask, how is this possible? How is this possible that this righteous, almighty judge can show mercy and not betray his judgment, not betray justice? How can he, as it seems, turn away from all their sins and disobedience and call them. And the moment they receive his call, the moment they repent, the moment they come to him, it's fine. But we know from history that these very people will fall back into sin again. The, the, um, the next wave, or the wave after that, of exiles that return, they return to their wicked ways time, again, time and again. And so we know these things from history, and we keep wondering then, how is this both a loving and a just God at the same time? Is he not breaking his own character and nature? And the answer is no. No. And we find that answer just after the people obey and they fear the Lord. Here's what he says. He doesn't say, well, go back. Your harvest will be plenty. You will have everything you need. 
Success and prosperity will go your way. He doesn't say that. He doesn't promise that, in fact, until uh, the second part of uh, chapter 2 of Haggai. He doesn't, he doesn't open the windows of heaven that he closed until then. What he says instead is this. He says, I am with you. I am with you. These are the very same words that we hear again 400 years later. God is with us. This is the name of that, mean, that, that reads in Hebrew, Emmanuel. Behold, Isaiah prophesied, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. This is how he is able to pursue his people, to magnify his glory, and to, maintain, to remain just, to forgive sins, to remain righteous, and to show patience. This is the answer, the logical conclusion, which allows, to, for, allows us to tie in all these knots, all these unanswered questions, where we're going, what's happening? Why is he, why is he doing this? How, how, how can this be? This is the answer. This is how it can be. Paul captures it really, really well in his letter to Philippians when he says, Though he was in the form of God... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how he glorifies himself. This is how he glorified himself back then. This is how he glorifies himself right now. This is who the temple is. Yes, the temple, we are the temple. That's true. That's absolutely true. But we are the temple only because Christ is of whom that temple was the type of. That was just a building. He's a person, he's a God and man, fully God, fully man, perfectly obedient, so that God could be gracious and just at the same time. And as we, we come to the end, we, we must ask, well, how's this good news for us? How does this apply to us, how, how does this message of Haggai apply to us? Well, for one, it is a humbling message. As I said earlier, whenever I read Old Testament and see what Israelites did, it's not to say, well, how could they? I would never have done it. It's to say, wow, I would have done it. Well, to me, this is who I am. And, you know, we've, we've, we, we don't know each other well enough, and I, and I don't know what... what troubles and difficulties and issues you go through in life. I, I, I don't know your everyday, your ins and your outs, but you know, you know those areas of life where, where Christ, where God is replaced with something. You know what stands higher than him on your priority list. I know that same thing for myself, and I need his help day in and day out to see that again and to see again, and again, and again, and to be convicted of the fact that if 
left to my own devices. I'm fine with living without oxygen. I'm fine to living uh, with living in that forest as I'm suffocating, as I'm dizzy, as I'm about to pass out and die. So this is a humbling message. This is a message that as much as it calls called those people to turn back to God, it calls us Christians, people of promise, people of hope, to turn back to God, to look at ourselves, to examine our lives and say, what's happening? Where, is my, where are my, my priorities at? How am I dethroning God? How am, am I forgetting the foundation on which my life is built? How am I ignoring the temple? But this is not where the message ends, and this is not where our application ends, because this is a message of hope. It is a word of great comfort. It is a message from God who goes after his people. This God will be worshipped. This God will be glorified. And he is willing to be glorified by us, by pursuing us, not only saving us, but in our salvation, in our sanctification, time and again pursuing us and turning us back to himself, back to himself. And this is a message of hope. I don't know about you, but this sounds more than hopeful to me. This is something that I can cling on to in the coming week, in a coming day, even this very evening. This is something that I can take hold of and say, Lord, you are faithful. I don't understand this. I, 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 honestly, I don't. The question I always ask him is, why, Lord? Why me? Why my family? Why my wife? Why us? And that answer is, I, I like the fact that the why remains to an extent unanswered. But I know that that's still true, that even though I'm asking why, that doesn't change the fact that he's chosen us, that he saved us, and that he pursues us so we could worship him. This does not mean that we should abandon all that we do and just stay in this building 24-7, seven days a week. That doesn't mean that. That's not a, what about the passage is, what, what this passage is about. This passage is about the attitude of the heart in all that we do. And so, brothers and sisters, as this crazy year is coming to an end. We don't know if the next one is not going to be uh, even crazier. We don't know that. But that doesn't really matter where we are standing and where we're looking from. This has been a difficult year. This has been a turmoil uh, of a year. And yet we have the Lord of hope, the Lord who pursues us, who fights for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Let us see that hope. Let us live by it. Today, tomorrow, and to the end of our days. Let's pray.